Welcome to the Food for Your Soul podcast, where we apply the Word of God to the hearts of men and women to stoke the fires of your delight in Christ. When was the last time you felt shame? And maybe your answer is something like, I can't hardly remember the last time not feeling shame. We all feel it to some degree. Uh, shame about your past, shame about something you've done recently, your failures. Shame, some shame is deserved, some shame is undeserved. It's hard to say which is more painful. Both have their unique sting. In our next study, we'll plan on looking at what Jesus teaches us here in this passage about how to deal with undeserved shame, uh, embarrassment you feel when people look down on you, uh, even though you didn't do anything morally wrong. If you are a person who struggles with what, worrying about what other people think of you, disapproval, shame you feel because of your body, uh, your looks, your habits, um, social clumsiness, dumb things you've said. If that's you, then you'll want to make sure you're here next time because we'll cover that. But for today, we're going to focus on those times when we deserve shame. We've done something wrong. And it's an important topic because whether it's deserved or undeserved, is there an emotion more painful than shame Uh, and more debilitating? It's just this gnawing, aching burden that saps your strength, your confidence, your motivation, your joy. It's just like walking around in this dark cloud where you're experiencing yourself as defective or ruined, damaged goods. And it can prevent intimacy with God because you feel, because of shame, makes you feel like you need to keep your distance from Him. What can be done about unrelenting shame? We're in Mark 15. We left off last time at verse 15. Mark 15, 15, where it says, Pilate had Jesus flogged. Now, that's all we're going to hear about the flogging, just that. But if you've seen the Passion movie, you know that at this point, Jesus is half dead. Flesh hanging off him and ribbons, blood everywhere. Pilate had hoped that that would satisfy the crowd, but they're bloodthirsty now. So Pilate finally gives the order, okay, take him outside the city and crucify him. He says that in verse 15. They don't do it until the end of verse 20. We go down to end of verse 20. See, then they led him out to crucify him. So Paul Pilate says, lead him out to crucify him. They, and they wait five verses, and then they do it. What happens in between verse 15 and 20, where, uh, where, between where he gives the order and it actually happens? Instead of leading him out of the city to crucify him, they lead him in to the palace. <laughs> verse 16, the soldiers led Jesus away into the palace. This is Herod's extravagant royal residence. Why take Jesus there? What are they going to do there? Whatever it is, it's going to require a lot of men. Verse 16, the soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. Now, they would assign four soldiers to crucify a man. That's how many it took. But here, they called together the entire company, probably hundreds of men. They needed everybody there in order to accomplish what they wanted to accomplish here, namely... The absolute, utter humiliation of Jesus. From here all the way to verse 20, the only thing that happens is mockery. That's all that's going to happen here. Now, 
This is important. When we talk about the cross, we usually make much of the physical torment and torture, right? The scourging, spikes, and the, all the, you know, preachers will give excruciating detail about, you know, how much that must have hurt to have those spikes pounded in and everything else. But look at how much detail Mark gives us about the physical part. Uh, we already read everything Mark says about the scourging, right? Pilate had Jesus flogged. That's it. That's it. That is not much description. And what about the crucifixion itself? I mean, the crucifixion is a big deal, right? That's like the center of everything. That's the climax of everything. How many words does he devote to that? Two in the Greek. Verse 24. And they crucified him. Zero detail. <laughs> just, just that. That's Mark's style. I mean, he's like that, right? Big, important events. The, the transfiguration, one verse. Uh, one of the most astonishing, spectacular, important events in human history. It gets one verse. Jesus' baptism, less than that. The stilling of the storm, one verse. Crucifixion, two words. But the mocking of Christ takes up most of the chapter. We already saw the mockery in the Jewish trial and the trial before Pilate. And now here's our passage in verses 15 to 20. This is what they do when they take him inside the palace. Here's what goes on in there. Verse, now listen to how much detail he gives us. Verse 17. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put on his own clothes, and then they led him out to crucify him. This is all about humiliation. That's why they gather so many men. That's why it takes so many men. Because the more people, the more embarrassing, right? When you do something really dumb, uh, what's the first thing you do when you do something embarrassing? You look around, it's like, how many people saw that? <laughs> right? Because if you, if you trip and fall and one person snickers at you, that's one thing. If it happens on a stage with hundreds of people laughing at you and everything, that is a lot worse. They want Jesus to feel the maximum amount of degrading embarrassment and humiliation possible, and so they get as many people as possible. The whole company. And that's not even all. After this paragraph, he's not done talking about Jesus' humiliation. There's a whole other paragraph after they get him up on the cross in verses 29 through 32. It says, those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, so you are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days. Come down now from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Christ, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who cru those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Everybody's getting in on it. Everybody's involved. Just all this detail about the insults thrown at Jesus. The gospel writers make a way bigger deal about Jesus' shame than about Jesus' pain when it comes to the cross. And that's the Old Testament emphasis as well in prophecy. In Isaiah 49, 7, uh, the coming suffering servant is described as he who was despised and abhorred by the nation. Isaiah 50, verse 6, I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. 
Isaiah 53, 2, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. You see the same thing in the epistles. Why so much emphasis on shame? Well, I'll suggest two reasons. First, it's because the shame matters more than the pain theologically. Because what is the most important thing about Jesus? It's His glory, right? It's His glory. What's the greatest thing that can ever happen in the universe? The greatest thing can ever happen. The glorification of Christ, right? For His glory to be magnified, made more clear, unveiled, easier to see and appreciate. That's what it means to glorify Christ. So if that's the best thing that can happen in the universe, what's the worst thing that can ever happen in the universe? For his glory to be obscured or defaced. The shaming of Jesus is emphasized most about the cross because the shaming of Jesus was the worst thing that ever happened. It's the worst thing that ever happened. What these soldiers did to Jesus in the palace was even worse than what they did to him on the cross when they pounded spikes through his limbs. Mankind's job is to showcase the glory of Christ. Marring his body is bad. Defacing his glory is the worst sin mankind can commit. And it was the apex of his suffering. When you talk about the suffering of Christ, the worst part of his suffering was the shame. Because the more honor a person deserves, the more painful the dishonor. And Jesus deserved infinite honor, so it's impossible for us to even imagine how painful this dishonor was for Jesus. The gospel writers make much of Jesus' shame because that shame was the bitterest part of the cup that he had to drink and because it was the most theologically significant part. That's one reason. But here's another. What was Jesus doing on the cross? What was he accomplishing? He was dying in our place to pay the penalty that we deserve for our sin, right? In our place. And what is the penalty? Shame, right? Shame. Isaiah 53, 4. Surely he carried our sorrows. What kind of sorrows, Isaiah? The previous verse. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows. Same word. It's the sorrow of being despised and rejected, the shame. The reason the Messiah would have to be despised and humiliated was he needed to be shame. He had to carry shame in our place because that's what sin deserves. Now, does sin also deserve physical punishment? Yes, that's why hell is described as a lake of fire. Ouch, that's, I mean, that hurts, right? That's physical pain. So the cross had to be painful, and it was. But just physical pain wouldn't have been enough. First and foremost, the most fundamental consequence of sin is shame. You go, Bill and I were talking at, at dinner. You go back before the fall in the Garden of Eden, the paradise of the... Think of all the amazing emotions that Adam and Eve experienced in the Garden of Eden. How many of them are we told about? Only one. Only one emotion is mentioned in the pre-fall state of man. That is... They felt no shame. Isn't it interesting that of all the things God could tell us about what it's like to be in paradise, that's the thing. 
No shame. And as soon as they sinned, they hid themselves because in Adam's words, I was ashamed. Shame is the core consequence of sin. So that when God describes hell in Daniel 12, he doesn't even mention physical torment or pain or anything like that. Daniel 12, 2, multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, and others to shame and everlasting contempt. That's hell. It's a place. That's what we deserve for our sin. Shame forever. If Jesus is suffering in our place on the cross, if that's what he's doing on the cross, the main thing we deserve is shame and contempt, then the main thing he had to suffer would be shame and contempt. That's why Jesus couldn't die with dignity. It couldn't be a beheading. It couldn't be a stoning. Crucifixion existed for the purpose of shame. It it, it was designed not only to be the most painful death they could think of, but also the most degrading and humiliating and dehumanizing death that they could think of. So much so that the word cross was a swear word in Roman society. You you couldn't even say it. Cicero said, even the mere word cross must remain far, not only from the lips of citizens of Rome, but also from their thoughts, their eyes, and their ears. If the people back then ever saw somebody walking around with a necklace with a cross on it, they they would think you're out of your mind, right? It's crucial that we understand that's what Jesus was doing on the cross. The main thing he was doing. He was dealing with our shame. I think there's a lot of Christians who understand that Jesus suffered punishment uh, in our place so that we don't have to endure physical punishment in hell. But what they don't understand that is he also bore our shame on the cross so that we don't have to bear it. They keep trying to carry their own guilt, uh, even, even after they've repented and been forgiven. They still try to carry their own guilt because they miss the central feature of what Jesus was doing on the cross, suffering in our place. He was carrying our shame. So, as Christians, should we feel shame for our sins? Well, yeah, of course, we don't want to be like the people in Jeremiah 6 who uh, forgot how to blush, you know, and they're rebuked for not ever feeling shame. If you don't feel any shame, that's a bad Even the world recognizes that as a bad thing, right? They've got a word for that, sociopath, right? If you don't feel any shame at all, you don't have any conscience at all, you're a sociopath, no remorse. However, when the world uses that term, you notice they only use that term for the most extreme cases, <laughs> right? Because if they're consistent, they would have to say all of us are sociopaths to some degree. The only way a sinful person can live life without going out of his mind with guilt is to find a way to downplay his guilt, right? To become somewhat of a sociopath. That's what unbelievers do. But what about us? We don't want to be like that. How are we to handle the crushing weight of deserved guilt? Well, just real quickly, we start by letting it do its job. Instead of pretending it doesn't exist and hiding our head in the sand, we let it hit us with full force, the stronger the better, so that it can do its job, which is what? 2 Corinthians 7.10, Godly sorrow, or shame, brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. It goes through that process, and then it's gone, right? does its job, and then it's gone. We can escape the shame, but only after it drives us through 
the dark, painful valley of repentance. There's no way to bypass that valley, it's, it's, and, which is a good thing to remember in the moment of temptation. When you're tempted to sin, you say, oh, if I commit to sin, the only way back is through the agony of repentance, shame, sorrow, and repentance. But when we take that path and we do repent, it leaves no regret. We're free from that chain forever, forever. And, of course, then the question is, well, what if I'm not? I mean, I should be, but I, I repent. I'm still tormented by guilt feelings. Well, that's a faith issue, right? Either you're not trusting that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was adequate, or you don't believe God when He says He credits that to your account. Shame's covered. It's dealt with. If you struggle with shame, even after you've repented, maybe that you just don't understand what Jesus was doing on the cross. I mean, until I did this study, I didn't understand that. I didn't really realize why there was so much emphasis on His shame on the cross. Spend some time thinking about how much shame Jesus suffered in your place and how much emphasis God's Word places on that shame that He suffered. Think about that. He didn't do that for nothing. He certainly didn't do it so that you could walk around carrying the load of your own shame. When the enemy tries to rub your face in your past, just tell him, hey, why don't you just go and measure how far the east is from the west and then get back to me and tell me again why I should carry something that Christ already took on himself. Okay, so all that to just give you the big theological backdrop, uh, the big theological picture of this idea of what Jesus is doing on the cross. Now let's look at the details of this passage with the soldiers. The first thing you'll notice about this round of mockery, this is just one of the rounds, but this particular round of mockery is that all, this one has all that has to do with Jesus' kingship. Right? The purple robe, the crown of thorns, hail, king of the Jews. It's all about him being king. In the Jewish trial, they mocked Jesus as a prophet. Here, they mock him as a king. And they start with his clothing. So they strip him naked in front of everyone, and then they put this purple robe on him. What is that mocking? Why, why, do, why do kings wear purple robe, royal garments? Well, it's a symbol of glory, right? The king has to be decked out in more glorious clothing than everyone else. Uh, so what they're doing here by putting this robe on Jesus is they're mocking him for the fact that he doesn't have any kingly glory. Right? Next came the crown, verse 17. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. So a wreath-type crown is typically a symbol of victory. So a, a, a king who had a big victory in battle or something like that would wear a crown like this. Crowning Jesus in a sarcastic way with this wreath-type crown, what they're doing is they're mocking Jesus as a weak, pathetic king who's achieved no victories. I mean, he's never beaten any army. He has no victory, only defeat. That's all, he's, that's all he's experienced is defeat. Look at him. Standing there, he's a mess. Verse 18, Then they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! That's praise, right? The greater the king, the greater the praise he receives. And so they make fun of Jesus with sarcastic praise. Verse 19, again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. This is to show Jesus' helplessness. 
You can't do this to a real king, right? <laughs> Unlike a real king, you can do anything you want to this man and no consequence. Just walk up to him, smack him in the head, spin on him. Nothing happens to you. Not a very good king. Matthew's account gives us a little more detail about this rod. The rod that they put in Jesus' hand was a mock scepter. Uh, a scepter was a symbol of a king's power and authority. That's what it symbolized. What they did was they put it in his hand, then they took turns coming up to Jesus, bowing the knee in mockery, then spitting in his face, grabbing that scepter from his hands, and smacking him in the head with it, with his own scepter. Then they'd put it back in his hand, and the next guy would come and take his turn. And Mark says that just went on and on and on. So they mock his lack of glory, They mock his record in battle against enemies. They mock his worthiness to be praised. And they mock his lack of power. And they do it in the most degrading way. Verse 19, again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Kings are worthy of the utmost honor in society. By spitting on him, they mock Jesus as a king who demands zero respect. They rip away every shred of dignity. Verse 19, falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. This is mock allegiance. It's another aspect of being a king. People have allegiance to you. The greatness of a king is measured by how many different nations and peoples swear allegiance to that king. A king who's recognized by only a little small population in a tiny area, that's not much of a king. You get a guy like Caesar, who commanded allegiance from many countries and a vast empire, now that's a great king. So they're making fun of Jesus as one to whom no one has loyalty. I mean, not only does he not have nations, but his little band, not even his little band of disciples is loyal to him. They even abandon him. Look at him. He's standing there all by himself, not even so much as a right-hand man who stuck by him at his side. No loyalty. You know, even in the movie The Passion, Jesus still, in that movie, Jesus still kind of maintains some dignity the way he dies, right? He's got a loincloth. He's not completely humiliated. I think if they made a movie that showed the real humiliation and degradation and disgrace of Jesus, you know when those people are shouting insults at him, it's not like, you dork! You know, it's... You can imagine, it's the most degrading stuff. If they had a movie that showed all that, I, I don't even think we'd be able to make it through the movie. It'd be just, just too painful to watch. Jesus owns the universe. I mean, think of, he, think of his patience. He commands angel armies. But he just lets this happen. A little later when they mock him for not being able to come off, down off the cross. You know, this is why I'm different from Jesus, one of the many ways. But if it were me, I would think, you know, it would just be so tempting to just like, hop down off the cross, go over, slap the guy, and then get back and go back up on the cross and finish purchasing redemptions for everybody, right? Just to show. But see, if he can't do that because that would give him some dignity. He had to drink the whole cup, especially the shame part, the humiliation part. Think about the crown of thorns. I heard all this, I read all this stuff about what kind of thorns they might have been and how long they might have been and what species of thorns. None of that's important. What do thorns represent theologically? Why do thorns exist? 
Genesis 3.17, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. Thorns exist as a symbol of the curse on this world because of man's sin. Jesus was crowned with the very curse of sin. Someday the curse will be reversed. No more, no more thorns, no more decay, no more death, nothing broken. And that day, interestingly, is tied to the day of our redemption in Romans 8. You can read all about this in Romans 8, 19-22, where it talks about how the elimination of the curse is connected to the day of our salvation. It, all, and the point of that is all of it was accomplished the same way at the same time, on the cross. It was all accomplished on the cross. Remember, the reason the Jews wanted Jesus crucified and not stoned or something else is because of the curse of God. They wanted the curse of God to be on him, which it was. Cursed is anything hung on a, anyone hung on a tree, Deuteronomy 21-23. The crown that they placed on Jesus' head was a heavy crown. It was the heaviest crown ever placed on the head of any monarch. That crown pressed down upon Jesus the full weight of the curse of God on the entire created order. He bore the curse in order to purchase redemption from the curse. Now, here's what I just love about this passage, and I appreciate the soldiers, <laughs> as evil as they were, because what, this, what their mockery does is it teaches us to, how to think about the various elements of the kingliness of Christ, because they go through one element after another of what it means to be a king. Remember, all through Mark 14 and 15, Mark has been teaching us the truth about Jesus through irony. Right? Irony is when the, the words a character speaks carry a lot more meaning to the reader than the speaker meant by the words. In this case, it's the opposite meaning, because they're, they're doing all this in, with sarcasm. And everything they say in sarcasm turns out to be right on. Right? So they do their worst in mocking Jesus, and Mark sits back and says, Honestly, I couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> you guys, that's right on. In this case, the soldiers give us a perfect summary of the meaning of royalty. If you want to know why Christ's role as king is important, so you know him as your savior, as your older brother, uh, as your lord, uh, as your creator, all these but why is it important to know him as your king? Why is that important? How does that help you love him more? Well, all you have to do is go through each element that they're mocking and learn to appreciate that. So they mock him for having no glory, no victory, no praise, no power, no honor, no allegiance. You go down that list and consider the truth of each one of those about, with regard to Christ. Glory? Well, what did we see in Mark about glory? We saw that in the transfiguration, right? Instead of receiving glory from putting on fancy clothes like most kings have to do, Jesus gave glory to his clothes. <laughs> Remember that? He had so much intrinsic glory that has turned his regular clothes into this dazzling, white, radiant, blazing, like the sun glory. <laughs> that's, now that's real glory. Anyone can put on a robe. Nobody can do that to their clothes. Pretty good glory. How about victory? You know, victory, I mean, Jesus wasn't a military leader, so he didn't really win any victories against their enemies. Uh, oh, except for the enemy of disease. 
uh, sickness and disease was the worst enemy. That, that was worse than even the Romans, right? And Jesus healed everyone who came to him, thousands. Basically banished disease from Israel during those years. Oh, and another enemy he did pretty good against, demons, right? Think about that. Not even the entire Roman army could protect you against even one demon. They, they couldn't even begin to defend you there. Jesus faced thousands of them and sent all of them running for their lives and begging for mercy. Jesus even faced down the devil himself. In, his, in Jesus' weakest moment, faced down the devil himself and defeated him. So disease, demons, the devil, and then the really big one, death. Jairus' daughter died. Jesus just took her by the hand, lifted her to his feet, and she was perfectly healthy. I think that family would say, yeah, Jesus defeated a pretty significant enemy in our case, the death of our 12-year-old daughter. All in all, not a bad string of victories, I would say. Disease, death, the devil, demons. So, yeah, Jesus did pretty good with the whole thing about victories. What about the next thing in the list? Praise. I mean, they mocked him because he's a king that nobody praised. But the truth is, we just saw, not too long ago, when he came into Jerusalem, what were they shouting? Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest! And that was just a sample of the, pra- the day when every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. He has praise. They mocked him for his lack of power, you know, by taking the scepter and hitting him with it. They didn't think he had any power, but I don't see any of those big, tough soldiers walking on water. And not just any water, but the sea, which was considered the realm of the forces of chaos that not even the gods could handle and tame. Jesus walks on it and tells it to shut up and turns the raging chaos into glass. He literally commanded nature. They were grabbing the scepter out of the hand of a king who had power beyond anything they could even conceive of. What display of power could be greater than commanding natural disasters to stop? Well, I can think of one. How about this? How about the ability to control human destiny? We see that in the way... Every one of Jesus' prophecies about this whole crucifixion thing came to pass to the letter. He controlled his own destiny. He controlled their destiny. That's pretty good power. They mocked him for lack of honor. This man has no honor, right? Nobody honors him. But twice, God the Father spoke from heaven and called him, my son, whom I love, and then commanded, listen to him. (laughs) That's a pretty good honor. And Jesus was just about to be exalted to the right hand of God, where he would share God's sovereign throne. What about allegiance? I mean, nobody would ever seriously bow their knee to Jesus Christ, right? I mean, Jesus... When did Jesus ever capture an enemy, take anybody prisoner? Imagine Jesus speaks up right at this point and says, Gentlemen, what would you say if I told you that before sundown tonight, I will capture 
your commander, that guy right there, the centurion. No doubt a very tough, capable figure, commander of 100 men. Even with no protection at all, that centurion could easily handle Jesus, right? But here he's surrounded with a whole company of armed soldiers. That must have gotten, that would, have get, that would get a lot of laughs if Jesus said that, right? I'm going to capture your commander before the sun goes down tonight. Well, what happened? Jesus did capture him before the end of that day. You skip down to verse 39. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the Son of God. Jesus captured the toughest among them, but not by force. You know, it's not that hard to capture a man physically if you have enough people, but it takes a real king to capture a man's heart. And now, no human being has ever had more people bow their knee to them in the history of the world. No one's ever had more people bow their knee to Him than Jesus Christ. And every one of us who does it counts it a privilege. We're not forced to do it. This is beautiful. I don't know of any theological treatise on the kingship of Christ that gives a more beautiful outline of what it means what his kingliness means than what these soldiers gave us. Just point by point. Glory, victory, praise, power, authority, honor, and allegiance. What a king! No human being has ever exhibited or received as much glory as the Lord Jesus Christ. No one's ever gained victory over more powerful enemies than Jesus. No human being has ever been praised by as many lips. No one has ever exhibited a fraction of the power and authority that Jesus exhibited. No one has ever honored, was ever honored more highly by God or by man than Jesus. And no one has, ever, no one has the absolute allegiance of more hearts than Jesus. Millions who would gladly die for Him. This half-dead bloodied, weak, pathetic man that they were mocking is the king of kings. The book of Revelation calls him the, the ruler of the kings of the earth. I love that title, the ruler of the kings of the earth, which means all the kings, if there's any conflict between them and Jesus, Jesus wins. Jesus is a king who has no limits. He recognizes no borders, no laws, nothing that could hinder his kingdom he, he, he said, all authority has been given to me, therefore go make disciples, make followers of me in all nations, teaching them to obey everything I commanded. And if there's any conflict between their king and what I commanded, I win. He's established his church in every country, all over the world, no matter how hostile. He sets up churches right in their capital if he wants to. These soldiers didn't know it, but just in a few years from this point, Jesus would have a foothold even inside the very household of Caesar, right? Philippians 4. Now, here's where this really becomes helpful to me. If you're going to love the Lord your God with all your heart, if you're going to really love Jesus, really take delight in Him, it helps a lot to understand His kingly role. Because God designed us to need a king who fulfills each one of those elements of kingship that we just went through for us on our behalf. You go back through the legends and stories of human history, every culture, in every place throughout history, you'll find over and over and over stories of this one storyline. The people awaiting the return of a great king who once ruled, 
But, and when he ruled, the whole country flourished, everything prospered, and it was wonderful, but now he's gone and we're waiting his return. You see that storyline? I mean, I could go and give you example after example if we had time. It goes through all of history. Why? Why are we so fascinated with stories about a great king when the actual record of real kings in real life is abysmal? <laughs> Given our experience as human beings with kings, you'd think we would hate, the, hate any story that has a king in it. In real life, kingships almost always result in tyranny and injustice, slavery, and either defeat by an enemy or national decline. You'd think we would hate stories about kings, but we love them, and we keep buying books with those stories, because as bad a track record as kings have in human history, we still have this deep need for a real king. Our founding fathers broke off with England, and the very first thing they said is, okay, whatever we do, no king. Right? We're not going to have a king. Division of powers, checks and balances, and they came up with this great form of government, and we, we, we take pride in that. We take pride in America as, you know, we don't have a king. And yet, we can't help ourselves, right? We create our own king. We take billionaires, athletes, scientists, celebrities, YouTube influencers, whatever, and we... we we turn them into kings. We go down the list of, uh, of elements of kingship. All the things that the soldiers mocked Jesus for not having, we invent kings that have those elements, right? Because we need that. We crown our celebrities. We love seeing our celebrities decked out in beautiful clothes and everything. And we give them our allegiance. We give them our praise. We put them on TV and they make pronouncements on topics they have no expertise on whatsoever. And the whole culture bows to it like a royal edict. We can't help ourselves because deep within the human soul is a built-in, hardwired longing for a glorious Savior who will be glorious on my behalf. That's the key. Not just a glorious Savior, but someone who will be glorious on my behalf. I want a champion for me. We want a king so that we can ride the coattails of his glory. That's what we need. God made us with an appetite for glory, and we're not glorious enough, so we will find someone who is glorious and identify with that person's glory. We'll just do that. We were designed by God to jump on board a glory train and ride it. And so we invent our kings. You remember the last king of Colorado? You remember. A guy by the name of Peyton Manning? <laughs> what did we all say after the 2016 Super Bowl? We won! We're champions! We're the champions! We? One? Who's we? First person pronoun, that includes the speaker. Who won that Super Bowl? Me and Peyton Manning. Right? That's who won it. Now, did Peyton Manning and Von Miller and those guys play a little larger role than I did? You could argue that, I guess, but still, we beat the Carolina Panthers in that Super Bowl. See, the NFL is a billion-dollar business, not just because we like to see great athletes doing amazing things. It's because I want a champion who will defeat my opponents on my behalf so I can ride the coattails of that glory. That's what's happening when a stadium erupts with cheers. 
we even wear their jerseys, right? We do, we do it in politics. I want lower inflation. I want school choice. I want less corruption. I want less crime. I want this. I want that. Big national worldwide things that I have no power whatsoever to do. And so I put a crown on some political candidate, my political candidate, and I sing his praises because he's going to be my white knight that will just, this powerful savior who will bring about all this stuff that I'm not powerful enough to do. Of course, he's not either, but we'd like to imagine that he is on election day. We just can't help doing this. It's in our blood. We will put our hope in some savior. We will ride the coattails of whomever we see as most glorious because we need glory. Glory is opposite of shame. We need glory. We're hardwired to do that because we need someone who will be for us everything that the soldiers mocked Jesus about for not being. I need someone to be my champion on my behalf. And so the more I see Jesus that way, the more my eyes are open to his kingship, the one who will win victories on my behalf against my enemies on my behalf, and who never loses, this glorious leader I'm proud to be associated with, I'm on his team, he's on my team, uh, un- this, this, this savior with unrivaled power and authority, breathtaking honor, dominant around the world, a champion who never loses, heading up my team, the more I see that and ride on the coattails of all that glory, the happier I'm going to be. Seeing the elements of Christ's kingship is a huge part of loving God with all your heart. It's what will make you delight in Christ in a, in a whole new way. And it's the solution to shame. Jesus fulfilled those elements of kingship in spectacular ways, even in his humiliation, even in his earthly life he did, right? I just went through the whole list. But they weren't impressed because he wasn't wearing a fancy robe, <laughs> right? He wasn't wearing a crown, fancy robe. He wasn't wearing a fancy robe because he's not one of those little kings of this world. He's the big king. Last time we talked about big life and little life. Remember that? Little life is temporal. Little life means everything in this world that will be gone the moment you die. That's little life. Big life is the eternal kingdom of God. And the big king is the king that rules over the big life, the kingdom of God. The reason people preferred Barabbas, remember when they said, give us Barabbas? The reason they wanted Barabbas instead of Jesus Christ. They wanted Jesus Barabbas instead of Jesus Christ. Why? Because they cared more about little life than about big life. Which means they preferred little kings over the big king. They cared more about defeating Rome than about defeating Satan. Imagine King David for a second. Suppose his his scouts come to him with news. Philistines are about to do this massive attack on Israel. And, uh, and so there's going to be this big invasion. And so he calls together an emergency meeting with all his generals, and he's strategizing a defense. He's got a map laid out on the table, and he's, doing, he's showing them you know, all the strategies they're going to do and developing a plan. In the middle of the meeting, some kids come by. And they say, hey, David, if you're such a powerful king, give us all some candy. What would David do? I mean, he's not going to be distracted from planning this defense of this big invasion so that he can deal with kids. Because he knows that if he doesn't focus, really focus, on winning this battle, those kids will end up either 
slaves or sacrifice to the pagan gods or something like that. And so he's, he, he's going to, what's he going to tell those kids? Run along, kids. I'm, try, I'm trying to save the nation here. And so the kids start mocking him. You're not a real king. Can't even provide candy. What kind of king are you? What good are you? That's exactly what's going on here at the cross. They want Jesus to be like a little king. He's busy saving the universe. If your church is doing Advent readings, then you know that this last Sunday was the Bethlehem candle, which celebrates Jesus' kingship. So that's what we're doing right now, this season of Advent. If you're wondering whether I planned to be on this passage on this week, you don't know me very well. (laughs) In order for anything I ever do to match up with anything on a calendar, it would have to be forced on me by divine providence. But I'm thankful for providence because this is really amazing how this worked out. For hundreds of years, the church has devoted this week to fix our attention on Christ the King. And Christ will be honored as King even if He has to force it on me without me even knowing it. As you attempt to do that, do that this week, think about Christ, G- King Jesus. Use this scene. I know it's hard to remember all those elements of kingship. If I told you right now, what are the elements of kingship? What are the seven or whatever? I don't even remember how many. You probably wouldn't be able to remember. But it is easy to remember a scene. So just picture this scene. I mean, you can't remember, you know, power, glory, authority, allegiance. But just picture the scene. The, the robe, the crown, the mock praise, the scepter, the spit, the homage bowing on their knees. Each one of those points to a specific ray of the glorious splendor of the royalty of Christ. And every time you're tempted to put a crown on some earthly person, which we're constantly doing, your spouse, your dad, a politician, a celebrity, a sports figure, let that impulse remind you, I I have a real king. I have a real king. Transfer all your hope from that little king to the real king. Let your hope in that little king just train you, be training wheels for hoping in the real king and riding on the coattails of his glory. Not only are you freed from carrying your own shame, if we can bring this full circle, not only are you freed from carrying your own shame because Jesus carried it for you on the cross, but In place of that shame, you can bask in glory. It's not just that you no longer have to have your head bowed in shame. You can lift your head high in victory because with Jesus as your champion, as your king, you really can use that first person pronoun. We are winning. We, me and Jesus, are winning, dominating the enemy and we'll enjoy eternal glory. Let's pray. Lord, we're we're not one bit ashamed to name the name of Christ and glorify Him, bow our knees to Him, worship Him, shout His praises, sing His praises. We know that He's the real King, and we thank You that You connect us with His glory. We don't just get to observe it. We get to ride in it. We get to... We get to ourselves be a part of his amazing entourage. Teach us to appreciate that in this season. We pray it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, King Jesus. Amen. So false, so the question is, 
What about false guilt and the connection between false guilt and pride? Probably what, what I said with connecting it with pride is false humility. False humility is when we um, put ourselves down all the time. And the reason it's connected with pride is because it's a still a focus on self. Um, it's just as bad as bragging because it's just as much of a self-focus as bragging. Um, now, false guilt can be tied to that because sometimes when we insist on carrying our own guilt, uh, it can be connected with pride because um, it takes a lot of humility to just have to be at the mercy of a Savior and be forgiven. My pr- our pride would naturally rather I could take care of it, or at least I contribute to the taking care of it. You know, um, I pay the price for my own. I take responsibility for my own actions, and I pay the price, and I I fix the problem. Um, and so, by kind of punishing ourselves and uh, our pride, it's like, okay, now I've dealt with it. I don't just have to totally humiliate myself like the prodigal son and just say, oh, I'm at your mercy. I I have nothing to say. Um, we want to be able to say a little something. You know, God, at least I, you know. And um, so, yeah, I think it is connected to pride. Most of our sins are connected to pride at some point, if not all of them. Thank you for listening. We pray these principles from the Word of God are helping you find the peace of God as you draw near to the God of peace. Please remember to pray for this ministry. And remember that we're a crowd-funded ministry, so every gift helps. Just go to treasuringgod.com. Until next time, rejoice in the Lord always and set your mind on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God.